Good morning. Sorry, I was just carrying on with that notice. We um, are in the middle of a sermon series called Biblical Sexuality, and today I'm going to do part three of that. Um, we started off that first week looking at gender, and then we had Andre come and share, and then last week Grant didn't, or he didn't speak um, as a part of the sermon series, but today is going to be part three of it. And this week I read a you can change that up, Baby's Bible Class. Thanks for the reminder. Baby's Bible Class can go, follow Natalie, have a great time. This week I read an article that said... That was blank, okay? <laughs> it spoke about sex robots could save your relationship and more good news on the future of love. Interesting. Four subtitles to this article. Beyond monogamy, and uh, the author said this, over the past two decades, we've seen gay marriage has revolutionized an ancient institution, once reserved for male and female. And marriage is, uh, and marriage is going to keep changing to reflect a population that is more mobile and, and lives longer than ever before. Entering into a monogamous, monogamous relationship, which is one partner for em, forever, simply won't be pragmatic. Okay, second subtitle, the author, author said this, beyond binary gender, okay, beyond two genders. Over the next generation, gender will also be varied, be more varied. Transgender people are now more visible than ever, offering a challenge to the idea that you have to live with the gender that you were assigned at birth. As we look to the future, we'll more see people rejecting the two-gender model entirely, opting for identities that are non-binary, gender-fluid, bi-gender, and gender non-conforming. In, in the next 50 years, when kids are growing up with pansexual grandparents, Bisexually um, may seem over, uh, sorry. In the next 50 years when, when kids are growing up with pansexual grandparents, bisexuality may be, may be seen as outdated or outmodeled. Or maybe it will apply only to a subculture of people who are attracted strictly to male and female. Pansexuality is likely the tip of the iceberg when it comes to identifying new sexual preferences. And then lastly, or, or thirdly, beyond humans. If pansexuality sounds strange to you, what about digisexuality? Anyone know what that is? I'm sure you talk around the, the um, water, where do you get water at the office? Don't you talk about robots and the future of AI and how that's going to affect relationships? Robots could also allow people to have relationships that aren't complicated by sex the way they are now. Perhaps two people who are deeply in love and want to stay married, married but their sex is no longer exciting. Having a no-stress sexual outlet could save their relationship. Using technology, we could decouple our desire for intimacy with our sex needs. We might find that we make better choices as a result. Any married couples struggling with their sex life at the moment and maybe bringing a robot into it could really just help spice things up a little bit. And then fourthly, beyond romance, and this is probably the one where I see the most truth in it, uh, the author says, why is romantic love supposedly so much better than deep friendships or kinship bonds? 
Why are we supposed to commit our lives to people we desire sexually rather than to people we care for as brothers or sisters? So we've seen a major shift in sexuality, especially in the last 50, 60 years with the sexual revolution. And what we've seen is, sorry guys, this clicker is not working. And uh, can someone come and get it? And what we've seen in the last 50 years is that sex has been disconnected from child rearing or childbearing and family. Sex has been disconnected from marriage. And sex has been disconnected from love, emotional, emotion, relational commitment, and even humans. So they talk about the younger generation being very focused on work. And um, because they still want to have sex, they, they still have sex because who has time for relationships and who has time to invest in another person and meet all their needs? But because they still want to desire sex, it's not now something that is constrained to a relationship or marriage. And you can read some of the articles that are out at the moment that talk about how the hookup culture is leaving a generation unhappy, sexually unfulfilled, and confused about intimacy. So these shifts that are happening in our culture, you experience them and see them and you talk about them in your work environment or in the school or in the universities, but these shifts that are happening are being hailed as moral progress, a liberation from the darkness. What is being said in progressive circles is that anyone who holds to the traditional view of sex is in need of moral and psychological enlightenment. Anyone who is not moving with the norm on the culture and what is happening in society, anyone who is holding to some traditional views about marriage and sexuality and when you can have sex and why can't you have sex, needs moral and psychological enlightenment. You are not just regressive, but you are harmful. Not only are you harmful, but what you are saying is hateful. It is becoming more and more difficult in the world that we live in even to preach about what is written in this book. I am considered dangerous for believing what the Bible says. And if I subscribe to a historical or a traditional view of marriage and sexuality, I am dangerous and I can be hateful. And the more culture evolves into an anti-God society, the more it moves away from right and wrong. As long as it is consensual, you can basically do what you like with whoever you want and whatever you want, now that we talk about robots. So when we lose the knowledge of the existence of a creator, we lose the concept of design. When we lose the concept of design, we undermine the discovery of purpose. So we live in a house that Milan's parents built. So we've got the papers, the original design of the house. There was an architect who sat down with her parents and there was a design. Now if you come and visit my house and maybe you've seen these drawings and you walk in and, and the house is completely different. Things are not the way they were supposed to be based on these sketches and design. And what happens is we start living in a world where we deny the fact that there is a creator and there is a design. 
Then when we start losing the fact that there is a creator and, and possibly a design, we start losing the idea of the purpose of why we do certain things, why things are right and why things are wrong. And in the very first week, I spoke about a person that was struggling with gender dysphoria. And this lady said this, I came to trust that God had made me female for a reason, and I wanted to honor my body by living in accord with the Creator's design. My question to you today is, is there a design? Is there a Creator that has designed things to be a certain way? Or have we moved beyond that design into a world that says basically you can do what you want as long as, there is, uh, as, long as you consent to it? And today I want to talk a little bit about the traditional historical view when it comes to marriage and sexuality. So Jesus is asked a very interesting question in Matthew 19, verse 3 to 6. And some Pharisees came and tried to trap him with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for just any reason? And Jesus' response to this is, haven't you read the scriptures? Jesus replied, they recorded that from the beginning, from the beginning is the name that I've decided to title the sermon. Because for us to talk about this sensitive topic, we do have to go back to the beginning. We have to look at Genesis 1 and 2, and we have to look at that original design and say, is it still relevant today when we talk about these topics? So he says, they recorded that from the beginning, God made them male and female. I want to point out that there is a creator and the created. That there is the creator that has created and we are that created being. And it says that he made them male and female. And he said this explains why a man leaves his father and his mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. If you've been to any weddings recently or in your lifetime, there is a good chance that the pastor that was officiating that wedding read this verse, who God joins together. You leave your father and your mother and you join with this person and you no longer are two people, but you become one. And if God has joined you together, let no one separate you. This verse talks about being one flesh. Then why did Moses say in the law that a man could give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away, they asked. And Jesus replied, Moses permitted divorce only as a concession for your hard hearts, but it was not what God had originally intended. And I tell you this, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery unless his wife has been unfaithful. If we look at the divorce rate today, it is 50%. Flick a coin up, you've got a 50-50% chance that your marriage is going to survive. Was it God's original intention that a husband and a wife should end up in divorce? He said, Moses permitted it because he saw the hardness of our hearts. He saw the broken world that we live in and the consequences of sin and all the things that we deal with that make us us. And he says he made concession for divorce. But Jesus says that was not God's original plan for marriage. God's design for marriage and sexuality is what I'm going to look at today. And I want to ask you 
three questions, and I guess I've already started talking about the answers to this, but if I could have taken a step back, what is your definition of marriage? And do you know what I love about this is because we've got so many young people in this church, and I would love to hear what the young people think of marriage. How would you define marriage today? How did you get to this definition once you tell me what your definition is? And, and how do the scriptures support this definition? So, if we can move on because we're short of time, two options for marriage. Marriage is either the union between two consensual humans, which is more of a modern Western secular view of marriage. And the question in, in that is, is male and, and female sexual differences necessary for marriage? When we talk about marriage, we often presume that we're talking about the same thing. In South Africa, same-sex marriage was, was legal since the Civil Union Act in 2006, on the 30th of November 2006. South Africa was the fifth country in the world and the first in Africa to legalize same-sex marriage. So I go back to your question. What is your definition of marriage? Two consenting humans or option two, the union between two sexually different humans, both male and female? Again, we go back to this passage in Matthew 19, verse three to six. And in this passage, Jesus refers back to this creation design. He goes back to Genesis 1 and he goes back to Genesis 2. Both those verses are represented in Jesus' answer here in Matthew 19. And the first one comes from Genesis 1, which we've already touched on in the very first week, that says, so God created human beings in his own image, and in the image of God, which is um, the icon, the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, go and make babies. Go and multiply, go and be fruitful, fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky and all the animals that scurry around in the ground. Genesis 1 is that picture, the, difference, the differences singing together in harmony. Day, night, land, sea, light, darkness, male, female. He says, I created male and female in my image, icons. And then we see the fall in Genesis 3. Genesis 3 is because of the fall, we are now cracked icons, image bearers of God. There is a, a crackedness that we all experience. The fundamental nature and impact of sin are that human relationships have now been distorted in the four directions, our relationship with God, our relationship with ourself, our relationship with others, and our relationship with the world. We are all cracked image bearers of God. We have all, in our sexuality and in our life, there is a brokenness that we all experience and live with. Genesis 2, verse 18 to 20, I also touched on this the first week. And then the Lord said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper who is just right for him. Some translations will talk about a helpmate, a helper fit for them. 
So the Lord God formed from the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he could call them. And the man chose a name for each one, and he gave them names to all the livestock, all the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But still there was no helper just right for him. Now this term helpmate or helper suitable is not a demeaning term, ladies. He's not saying shame, the poor man. Let's just find a a helper for him. This word is often used of God as intervening to help Israel, oftentimes through military intervention. It's a powerfully honoring term. But I guess the question that we're asking is, does the phrase suitable helper require sexual differences in marriage? Now the progressive view would say something like this. In the beginning when God made Adam, Adam didn't need Eve, he just needed another human. He didn't actually need female, he just was in need of another human. Because he looked at all the animals and nothing, no one was suited to him, so he was just in need of a human. But I want to say that but, um, Eve was suit, a suitable helper because she was human, yes, But is Eve's humanness the only thing that qualified her as a suitable helper? I want to show you a a word that um, will highlight how femaleness actually was was going to play a role in the suitable helper for Adam. Now the NIV, NIV uses this term suitable. Now the Hebrew word for suitable is this word konegdo. And it is used as we define it as a helpmate or a helper fit for him. And the two words is key, which means as or like. And the neged, the second part of the word, talks about opposite or against or in front of. Now this is quite a hard word to understand. Basically what he's saying when he talks about Eve is he's saying she is like or as, but then also saying this word as opposite to him or like against him. Let me explain a little bit further. The word potentially conveys similarity in the key and dissimilarity in the neged. Eve is a human, not an animal, which is why she is a key. But she's also a female, not a male, which is why she is different than Adam, or a neged, which is opposite to him. Do you get it? This is why he says, I have made a suitable helper for Adam. She is similar because she's human, but she is female. She is different, opposite, different, opposite to him. So the Lord God caused man to fall into a deep sleep. And while man slept, the Lord took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib or the side of him, and he brought her to the man. At last, the man exclaimed, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. And this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into One, or the two are brought into one. This is what Jesus is quoting from in Matthew 19. 
Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. They became one flesh. This is looking at a, a, a biblical definition of what marriage is. What does it mean to be one flesh? When he says they became one, united into one, and they became one flesh. Simply could mean the joining of opposite sex, sex people in sexual intercourse. After all, men and women exhibit anatomical complementarity, as some scholars would call it, or as some people would say, the different parts fit together like a plug in a socket. The two become quite explicit. One flesh when they are plugged, they become one flesh when they are plugged in. They become one. But I'm not too sure that this is all that he meant when he spoke about they became one flesh. But Paul does refer to this word when he talks about um, the, the church hanging out with prostitutes. Don't you realize that when your bodies are actually parts of, that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? We're not talking about just having tea and talking together. Never. And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her? For the scriptures say, there again quoting, the two are united into one, but the person who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. I want to say there is more than just that sexual union. It is the leaving your mother and father and becoming one family, joining together to become one family, creating a new family together. So the historical Christian view of marriage says this. Three things are necessary for marriage according to Genesis 2. Both partners need to be a human. Both partners come from different families, 2 verse 24. And if we interpret connecto correctly, both partners display sexual difference. Again, depending on your definition of marriage, which I'd love to hear, and maybe you guys can discuss it in your life group, and you look at the world that we live in now where sex has been disconnected from marriage, sexual immorality, sex meant for the union of marriage, any sex outside of marriage is sexual immorality. What is God's heart for marriage? Why did he intend it that way? Why did he, why did he intend for sex to be in the covenant relationship of marriage and not just something that you can do with anyone at any time? Was there a reason for it? Was there a blueprint that God had? And this is really what I'm asking you today. When you take scripture and you read scripture and you look at Jesus' answer to this question, is he pointing back to a creation design? Is he saying that God intended things to be a certain way? But then we understand the reality of the fall in Genesis 3 and we live in a broken, fallen world. And as the church today, we live with the consequences of this, the brokenness of the world, the brokenness of sexuality, our own brokenness. So today, in the year 2023, how do we navigate Jesus and sexuality? Because there's a good chance someone is sitting here today with a wrestle in their sexuality and they feel like they have to choose between Jesus or their sexuality. 
And the church can have a stance, and we can say as a church we prescribe to the historical, traditional view of marriage and sexuality. But then there are real people experiencing real challenges. And for maybe the older generation that would go, yes, we believe in the traditional histor historical view of marriage, you might have a younger generation going, you know what, no, we are far more inclusive today, we are far more about inclusivity, and it doesn't matter as long as you're not hurting anyone, it is, everything is fine, everything is acceptable. Let's shy away from right and wrong and sin and not sin, let's just love each other. And I wonder what the church will be like in 50 years' time. When my teenage boys have children, what sort of world they're going to live in. But I want to read one testimony of a young man that struggles with his sexuality. And I want you to just hear what he has to say and, and tell me how you feel about what he says to this response of the traditional view of marriage. He says, I'd like you to step into my shoes for a moment and walk with me just one mile, even if it makes you feel uncomfortable. I am gay, and I didn't choose to be gay. It's not something that I would have chosen, not because it's necessarily ba a bad thing, but because it's extremely inconvenient, it's stressful, it's difficult, and it can often be isolating and lonely. To be different, to feel not understood, to feel not accepted. I grew up... I grew up in a loving and stable family and the home that um, any child would wish for. I love my parents and I have strong relationships with both of them. No one ever molested me or abused me growing up and I couldn't have asked for a more supportive and nurturing childhood than the one I had. I've never been in a relationship and I've always believed in abstinence until marriage but I also have a deep-rooted desire to one day get married to share my life with someone and to build a family of my own. But according to the traditional interpretation of scripture as a Christian, I am uniquely excluded from that possibility for love, companionship, and for a family. But unlike someone who senses a calling from God to celibacy, or unlike a straight person who just can't find the right partner, I don't sense a special calling to celibacy, and I may find someone I grow to love and would like to spend the rest of my life with, but if that were to happen, following the traditional interpretation of Scripture, um, if I were to fall in love with someone, if, if those feelings were reciprocated, my only choice would be to walk away, to break my heart and retreat into isolation alone. And this wouldn't be the first time of heartbreak. I would continually throughout my entire life, um, whenever I came to know someone whose company I really enjoyed, I would always fear that I might come to like them too much and that I might um, come to love them. And within the traditional interpretation of scripture, falling in love is one of the worst things that could happen to a gay person because you, you will necessarily be heartbroken, you will have to run away, and that will happen every single time that you come to care for someone else too much. So while you watch your friends fall in love, get married and start families, you will always be left out. You will never share in those joyous, in, that, in those joys yourself of a spouse, of a child of your own, you will always be alone. How does that make you feel? Someone that may have or has same-sex attraction, that may be different to how we experience attraction to the opposite sex. 
Can you see how having a traditional a historical view can exclude some people in saying, Jesus, I love you and I want to serve you, but there is a, a view around marriage and sexuality and I don't see myself fitting into that. And how do I then choose and how do I go forward? These are some challenges that we face as the church. And next week, I am going to speak about homosexuality. And this is one of those divisive, dividing things in the body of Christ today. The ordaining of gay, gay, uh, of gay clergy, the blessing of same-sex unions. This is such a divisive thing in the church of Christ today. Taking what the Bible says, looking at the Greek words, jumping into it, and coming out with very different um, decisions on it. I'm going to read one verse because, again, I think it goes back to this creation design that God intended, but the, the fallen world that we live in. And I'm going to end with a scripture verse, Romans 1, verse 24 to 27, which I'm going to talk about next week. This is a taster for next week. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. And as a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie, so they worshipped and served the things God created instead of the Creator Himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. That is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the woman turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relationships with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men, and as a result of the sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. Paul again highlights and goes back to creation, a creator, and the design. And he uses this word, unnatural. They behaved in an unnatural way. Like there was an intended design for male, female, and sex, but they went against that design. And this Greek word unnatural is paraphysin. And if those want to, that want to jump deeper into this word unnatural, then please feel free to do so. But paraphysin, it was simply stock language used by the Roman and Jewish writers to condemn same-sex relationships. And this is going to be our topic for next week. So be brave and be ready. I'm going to try and be brave as we try and talk about a massive topic in 35 minutes. But today's sermon title is In the Beginning. In the beginning, God created Adam, then he created Eve, and since then, we are picking up the pieces. Marriage, divorce, love, hate, sexuality, adultery, romance, heartache, everything we know and think we know about love. First dates, men down on one knee, the hallmark cards with elderly couples who look the same. It all started with two naked humans in the garden. And we need to find out what it was that God created and what he called good all those years ago. And then we must wrestle with what's wrong with the world we live in now and the fallout post the fall in Eden. This whole thing was his idea. Love, marriage, sexuality, sex was all his idea. Romance. It all began in the mind of God. 
And it was his imagination, his creative genius that thought it all up. So I'm going to ask you, church, can we talk about this? Can we wrestle it through? Can we engage with a younger generation that live in a different world to you, older, older people? I didn't grow up as a, as a youngster with a smartphone, with the voices of social media and all that comes with the different voices that they get to listen to today. They didn't grow up, we, we grew up in a more traditional Christian society where it was male-female marriage, this was marriage, and sex was only for that. They are growing up in a very different world. So can we talk about it, young people? Can we wrestle it through? Can we talk about the implications of maybe standing up and saying, I believe marriage is this, and I prescribe to a traditional view? Or maybe you're a younger person that says, you know what, I'm more liberal and progressive, and this is what I believe marriage is, which is, you're right. But can you at least get to the definition of why you believe the term marriage means this? And can you support it in Scripture? Can you say, this is why I believe what I believe? Some people are saying this is an outdated, archaic document. It's for back then. It's not relevant for today. So yes, there's some truth in it, but it's not all truth. We will make our own truth. My truth is my truth. That's why this is fun. That's why this is sensitive. That's why this is difficult for us to even talk about this in church and in life group. And again, I'll say it. Please defend the unity in the spirit. Please wrestle these, thing, these things through in love. Please don't just talk about theory. We're talking about real people facing real challenges. And yes, we can disagree on some of these topics. It's not the end of the world. Actually, unpacking scripture is the way God intended it to be done. You must wrestle it through. You must do your research. There's so much, so many books available on the more affirming view and the non-affirming view. But we'll get more into that.